Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. of reconciliation, ClinPath Pathology acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Today's episode of this pathological life looks at indigenous health and its intersection with pathology along with health issues and challenges among Australia's first European settlers. But first, here's my dad, Steve Davis, with some background about some of the extra voices in this episode. Thanks, Caitlin. In this episode, we begin with Dr. Travis Brown providing an overview of First Fleet history. Dan Tyson then joins us from Alice Springs to provide general comments regarding our Aboriginal landscape back in 1788. Then we return to Dr. Travis Brown, who provides background to how the two worlds intersected. And then we close out the final part of the episode with Dr. Travis Brown explaining how all this played out from a health and pathology perspective. In between the various parts of today's episode, you'll hear voices from a documentary I made in 2003 entitled Sorry Proof Country. It was based on the then government's reticence about making an apology to the generations of people known as the Stolen Generations and was inspired by the film which was based on Doris Pilkington's book Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence. In between the segments, we'll be hearing from Doris Pilkington herself, Reverend John Brown, co-chair of the National Sorry Day Committee, Joylene Kulmatri, Indigenous healer and psychologist, Kenneth Branner, in his role as WA's Chief Protector of Aborigines from the film Rabbit Proof Fence, and Sir Ronald Wilson, co-author of the Bringing Them Home report. If you're curious, the documentary is on YouTube in three parts. If you search for Sorry Proof Country, you'll find them there. I was 24 when I was reunited with my mother and father. It was really a daunting experience for me because you're growing up to believe, you're told time and time again, you're here in this institution because your mother doesn't love you. And I confronted my mother a few years later and asked her, why did you give me away, Mum? She said, I didn't give you away. The government took you away. In the last few weeks, the Australian government made the announcement of a change to the words of our national anthem, Advance Australia Fair, in which the term, we are young and free, will become We Are One and Free. So this oneness becomes the theme of the song. And yet, interestingly, for this episode, when we're looking back at the introduction of Europeans on this land, uh, we really have a tale of two worlds, especially as they intersect with health. 
don't we, Dr. Travis Brown? We do, we do. So this first segment, we look at the journey of the Europeans uh, to, to come to Australia. So this is European settlement of Australia. So, uh, you know, going all the way back, we go back to J- uh, Captain James Cook, who landed in Botany Bay in 1770. Uh, he, at that time, named it New South Wales, uh, but he wasn't the first non-Indigenous person to come across this land. We'd, this had been discovered hundreds of years before, if you want to say discovered, so to speak, uh, with you know the Portuguese and the Dutch. It wasn't until the American Revolution that the Terra Australis came up as a potential place for transportation because, again, Americas were not welcoming anymore for convicts. Uh, And Joseph Banks in 1779, who had travelled with Captain James Cook, uh, stated that Australia was a potential alternative destination for, for transportation. So what was now known as the First Fleet uh, was organised through Lord Sydney, who uh, commanded the uh, Captain Arthur Phillip, who was soon to be the first governor of this New South Wales. And they had some instructions, which we've had to paraphrase a bit, uh, from Lord Sydney to uh, Phillip. Arthur Phillip was appointed our Captain General and Governor-in-Chief of our territory called New South Wales. He was to manage the convicts, grant and cultivate the land, and explore the country. Also, the Aboriginal people's lives were to be protected and friendly relations with them encouraged. Now, in that, there's no mention of protecting or recognising land rights. And again, this would be counter to British policy at the time anyway. They, uh, they were going to establish a penal colony, uh, penal colonies. And so the British were not ones who you know, go onto a land and actually say, well, this is your land, but can we use it? Uh, in fact, Australia was considered a terra uh, nullius, which was no one owned it, therefore we own it, and it was to be established as a British colony. It took a year of preparation for the first fleet to come together of 11 ships. They had sheep, a few cows, one bull, uh, Phillips Greyhounds were going along. They even had equipment such as tents, uh, farming equipment, wine, seeds, you know, hatchets, nail, pickaxes, knives. They were about to send anywhere between 1,300 and 1,500 people across the sea. It was an eight-month trip. This was for the crime or the punishment sentence of transportation. Now, people were sentenced to this either seven years, ten years, or for life, depending on their crime. Uh, over 80 years, so between 1787 and 1867, uh, approximately around 170,000 people were transported to Australia. This distance is around 24,000 kilometres or 15,000 miles. So it's six times the distance from England to Australia as it is from England to America. And so some of the crimes recorded over the, you know, for transportation, there was, you know, some 50 children uh, on, on the first fleet. Uh, some were convicts, some were the children of the mariners, and some were born on the voyage. There was actually 28 kids born on the voyage. Uh, so it was, it's an incredible thing to think about. 
then we have John Hudson, who was nine at the time of his sentencing, uh, who, with others, as believed, stole one linen shirt, five silk stockings, one pistol and two aprons from uh, a family. But he did not have anyone rep- to represent him in court. How old are you? Going on nine. And what business was you bred up in? None. Sometimes a chimney sweeper. Have you any father or mother? Dead. How long ago? I do not know. The judge sentenced John to seven years transportation and may have thought they were doing the right thing by getting him out of clearly a place where a nine-year-old doesn't go and steal someone's uh, possessions for for no reason. Um, So clearly someone was influencing his behaviour and thought to get away. By the time the First Fleet arrived in uh, Australia, he was 13 years old. The convicts, before they left, were transported to the holes of the ships, but they could be waiting for weeks before they even left. And the conditions below deck were noticed as being horrifically smelly uh, because the prisoners were unwashed. There was acrid bilge water. Prisoners were shackled. Uh, Some were stated as being barely clothed, if at all. And the cells were stated to be around five metres by three metres. And anywhere from around 24 prisoners, up to 50 were kept in there. And the surgeon John White, who was responsible for the health of the, the fleet over there, had policies of, you know, the prisoners or the convicts should be washed and clothed before they come came on board. Uh, now, whether that happened or not is a completely different matter, but that was the policy. And discipline was harsh. Punishment of up to 150 lashes could be dished out for people who were considered as misbehaving or as a punishment for recalcitrant convicts. And then we get the diseases on the ship. So they're they're travelling now. So people on ships greater than three months are at risk of nutritional diseases. So this is mainly from water-soluble vitamins. So this is the particular ones that we worry about is B1, so thiamine, B3, niacin, and, and vitamin C, or ascorbic acid. So nowadays, these are diseases we associate with nutritional deficiencies. So uh, things such as chronic alcohol abuse, where people pretty much go on a liquid diet and don't have any other intake, um, or anorexia nervosa, um, are at risk. But these are found commonly in meats and nuts and grains. But if we have a vitamin B1 deficiency, we call it beriberi disease. And the symptoms of this is people get, you know, edema in their legs. They can have difficulty walking. They can even get some paralysis or loss of muscle function. They can get pain, tingling or loss of sensation in their hands. And they can get what we call nystagmus, so eye twitching uh, or eye movements. They'll also get mental instability and, and personality change. Now, this can happen because they have vitamin B1 deficiency and you're not getting it in your food. Another one we have is vitamin B3 deficiency, we call pellagra. Uh, This is, again, niacin is used for enzymes and normal body function. Um, We classically have associated with this what's called the four Ds. People get diarrhea, and so they get inflammation of the entire gastrointestinal system, so they can get sores uh, or ulcers, nausea and vomiting. They can get a dermatitis rash, which is typically on sun-exposed areas, on the you know face, head and neck. They get 
this brown pigmentation and blisters and even the skin sloughing off. They can get a dementia. So this is a, the four Ds, diarrhea, dermatitis, dementia, and possible death. And dementia, they get insomnia and depression, hallucinations, memory loss. And that's why it's sort of referred to as dementia. And again, lastly, if it's prolonged, they can have death, which takes us to vitamin C scurvy so people know about scurvy a diet without vitamin c so if someone has no vitamin c after about four weeks they'll start to develop symptoms and so what does vitamin c do it's an antioxidant uh, so it helps us get the free radicals it helps us fight infection and it's useful for normal neurological function but the one where the symptoms come from is it's important for collagen formation as described as the glue of body cells and so what happens is if you don't have vitamin C, things like skin starts to blister and ulcerate. Old wounds can open up. You can get gums that putrefy and go black. Old healed bones that have been previously broken can re-break. And then they get cartilage breakdown. So people who have scurvy have been said to you know, rattle and creak, particularly around the chest when they walked. So inside the body, their arteries and capillaries start to... to decay and so this causes a whole bunch of problems with cardiovascular and neurological symptoms it, they get psychological symptoms such as hallucinations and vivid dreams and there's actually quite a, a number of reports where hardened uh, sailors wake up from these vivid dreams usually about food and then burst into tears when they realize they're about to eat a big meal but the meal's not there it was a dream oh gee so it was not uncommon for convicts to lose up to 10 teeth just because of scurvy on the trip. And it wasn't until 1795 when Sir Gilbert Blaine in the British Napoleonic Wars realized the link to citrus that could prevent scurvy. So this is, not, this is around this time, but again, how long it took that information to disseminate is anyone's guess. And all of those things because they're on a boat for three months or so. Well, for, at a time, right. And so that's the thing. This trip was eight months, and they would just go to ports to resupply, and clearly convicts wouldn't be let out. And we complain about airline food. <laughs> and then not only that, so there are some of the main diseases, extensive dysentery. So this is disease where you're in a cramped environment. Uh, people start getting dysentery. So nausea, vomiting, cramping, uh, diarrhea, uh, which could be either bloody or mucousy. Uh, they'll get fevers, and depending on how much fluid they lose, it can be fatal. The other aspect is that women and transportation was a whole different region because Lady Penrith of the First Fleet had 109 women on it, and it was essentially known at the time that these became pretty much floating brothels. In 1817, a British judge acknowledged that fact and said it was accepted that younger women would be taken to the cabins of officers at nights or taken to the crew. And so then, clearly, even John uh, White noted that venereal disease and sexually transmitted disease on the First Fleet was a problem despite their best precaution of this. During the voyage, the surgeon John White did try to address some of the things. Some worked and some didn't. Additional rations were given to the, the mariners and the convicts, such as extra sugar, currants, rice, barley, uh, and additional clothing. 
How effective this was, we'll talk about in a moment. The latest sanitation at the time was that the, the walls of the hull should be whitewashed with quick lime, uh, an explosion of gunpowder, uh, because to, to try and rid the place of this unwholesome dampness. Convicts were permitted to be allowed on deck to breathe purer air. But again, how often this happened was up to, up to the crew. 11 ships on the first fleet around let's it's 1300 to 1500 people records are a little bit different and around 750 to 770 convicts they only ended up having about 40 to 50 deaths on board which is around three or four percent which sounds bad to today's standard Mm. but the average was 10 percent on other transportation trips so these precautions seem to have worked And after eight months of traveling in several ports, on the 20th of January in 1788, 11 ships arrived at Botany Bay. Now, this was the area described by James Cook as suitable, but it turned out that it wasn't. It was an open bay. It was unprotected, shallow water. So they moved to Sydney Cove on the 25th of January. And the first light of the 26th of January convicts and soldiers were ordered ashore now the indigenous peoples the aboriginal peoples watched as this happened and tried to make sense of what was occurring the harshness of the land became apparent pretty quickly though aboriginal peoples had learned to survive and thrive in the environment what the europeans were trying to do was pretty much make european dwellings and live like traditional europeans in this environment. The slow progress with building dwellings. The fact that even with incessant labour, their gardens yielded them very little. The scarcity of fish and of wild greens made the winter a very miserable one. Captain John Hunter, who was a naval officer at the time, then soon to be governor, started realising as food became scarce because there wasn't the traditional ways and everything that they tried to do to grow food didn't work in this environment started to get into a starvation period. But they noted that the Aboriginals or Indigenous people were able to find at least some bush food. They were frequently found gathering a kind of root in the woods, which they broiled on the fire, then beat it between two stones until it was quite soft. This they chew until they have extracted all the nutritive part and afterwards throw it away. So in this environment... Where food is scarce, conflict seems inevitable. Someone said that the opposite of a black armband view of history is a white blindfold view of history. And I think that to deny the pain and the suffering and the shameful parts is to deny the truth. Dan Tyson is Chief Executive Officer of Alice Springs-based Desert Knowledge Australia. From 2017 to 2019, he was CEO of Sunrise Health Service, Aboriginal Corporation based in Catherine. And Sunrise provides comprehensive primary health services to 4,000 Aboriginal people in a large area immediately south of Arnhem Land. He holds a PhD in the field of medical anthropology, has worked extensively in the mainstream and Indigenous health sectors, and Dan's also of Irish, Scottish and Indigenous Australian origins. 
and the perfect guest for us to have on for this episode of This Pathological Life. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Many thank you. Many thanks and uh, good morning, everyone. Dan, before we launch into our conversation uh, for this episode, uh, I believe there's just an important qualification you'd like to make about the perspective you'll be uh, approaching these topics from. Yes, yeah, so thank you for that. Um, it's important to to note right at the very beginning that um, my commentary, my answers to the various questions are general, um, observational as well as a review of literature, um, and that I'm not speaking on behalf of, of Indigenous groups. So I don't want to be seen to be speaking without authority. So they're really just general comments. Uh, Dan, I uh, have fond memories of Catherine because I was up there running workshops many years ago, business workshops, and one of the participants was late because uh, there was a python that had swallowed a large, I think, kangaroo and was blocking her pathway off her mango plantation. What's your life been like up there in Catherine? That's an everyday thing, everyday kind of part of Catherine. It's a, it's a, it's a new and exciting day every day. And I spent quite a lot of my time in Arnhem Land, in um, Kakadu National Park, buffaloes and crocodiles and barramundi. Uh, Catherine itself is an interesting place. It's a crossroads of, uh, of really, of, of nor the northern half of the Northern Territory, east, west, north and south. I wanted to mention that because then we have a much richer understanding of the context in which your work is taking place as well. And, and then we uh, juxtapose that against some work you've done with Business SA. What was, what was involved in that? Well, a, a group of us in Adelaide had been working in the mining sector particularly, and we set up a group of Indigenous professionals working in the mining sector. And it, it blossomed into... A chamber of commerce, an indigenous chamber of commerce, and the current premier of South Australia was one of the one of the great supporters of of our initiative, as he was in, heavily involved in reconciliation Australia and may, and may continue to, to be involved. So that was a a very interesting development, sort of gone a bit quiet, but we had a formal relationship with Business SA, so Business SA would provide the back office. And, and access to training and other resources, and we represented the Indigenous business sector. In this podcast, we're actually looking at a snapshot in time. Uh, and so for 1788, when white man settlers come and first put their foot on the ground to stay, uh, the uh, Indigenous peoples are one of the oldest known civilizations from, you know, 80,000 to 100,000 years have been able to survive in some of the harshest land we know there's over 250 tribes in Australia at this time, uh, with each with their own languages, laws and boundaries. But one of the things I would, I would like your sort of input on is, you know, how do we know, like, the Indigenous cultures and people, how did they survive in such a, a harsh environment such as Australia that only Europeans were just about to find out how harsh? Well, I'd go back to your point about 250 tribes covering Australia... Um, the the myth of the, the nomadic life of people roaming around the country really needs to be dispelled. Um, people really survived in smaller geographic areas. So territories, if you like, de de delineated across Australia. 
that allowed people to have a very deep understanding of the spatial ge geographic characteristics of their country and their f flora and fauna. Um, they needed to understand and was very much part of life was knowledge of the seasons and how the seasons influence the movements and availability of, of food. Um, one of the things that a lot of Australians don't realise is that Aboriginal peoples were quite diverse, if you like, in relation to the technologies they used to survive on the land. For example, the hunting tools, food preparation, sign language, a main, a main form of, um, if you like, hunting and, and so on, um, and technologies in rich areas, fish and eel trapping, for example, in the western area of Victoria, the Burwarana area in New South Wales. So there's some interesting technologies at play there. Over those many thousands of years, um, people acquired a pretty detailed understanding of the therapeutic attributes of particularly the flora. Um, very importantly, one of the survival strategies, if you like, um, and it, uh, was the development of trading systems. Australia was crisscrossed with networks of trading um, pathways, if you like. And I'll give you an example of a, I visited a community in the Northern Flinders Ranges. I did some work in that area, taken to an area which was a tool making location. And in the shards of the, of the arrowhead, well, you know, the spearheads, were obsidian, which is volcanic glass that had been traded from Queensland. Um, similarly with ochre trading, some of the more interesting ochres were traded all over the country. Um, another one was, um, I'll get to it later on, but there's also knowledge transfer systems through song lines. So the historical information, information from related groups right across Australia. And one of the other survival strategies, um, I don't know how this arose, but the skin group system, the mathematics of that allowed for the prevention of inbreeding. So you've had isolated groups across the country with a very sophisticated skin, skin and kin group type of systems. And the mathematics of that ensured that inbreeding was avoided. So they are some of the strategies um, that allowed people to survive. Do we know much about the, the you know, the bush medicine uh, that they would have had back then, their, their understanding of how to manage illnesses or injuries? Do we, do we know much about that? I think we know quite a bit, but there's a lot more to know. And that brings up an issue around uh, intellectual property, the pharmaceutical characteristics of a lot of the bush medicines and now front of mind for Indigenous groups across Australia. It is known that there are a very large number of, of very diverse medicines uh, and a lot of science has been undertaken to support the efficacy of some of these uh, bush medicines. Very much used in many places today. I know that in, in southern Arnhem Land, from my experience at Sunrise, that people often retreat to the bush to use bush medicines and bush tucker to address issues around chronic disease such as diabetes. So use of medicines is quite high. It's declining in some areas, but certainly alive and well in many other areas. There are plenty of things that we don't know about bush medicines, but 
you know, the science is tell us and telling us more as we go along. Great. Do we have examples today of, uh, you mentioned intellectual property, so that there must be value today about what the Indigenous peoples knew about and, and their innovation. Uh, do we have any uh, good examples today? Yes. Um, I'll just give a couple, two or three examples um, from my own experience and, and also from reading. My personal experience was in one of the communities that Sunrise had a health clinic and I was talking to an old lady, an elder, who was rubbing honey on, on a burn. And I asked auntie what this was all about. And she said, oh, we've been using bush, bush honey or sugar bag, both as a food and as a medicine for time immemorial, which is a kind of convergence on the, on the Manuka honey yeah. kind of phenomenon that we use in the West. So um, I don't know what science, what research has been done in this area, but it's certainly one of the, one of the things that was a surprise to me uh, is completely convergent um medicine if you like so western and indigenous medicines if you like converge to very very similar uh kind of use um another one which has interested a lot of people in recent years is the use of the eremophila or emu bush there are quite a large number of species um used very widely across particularly in southern australia where the where the group where the plants um dominate. Small number have particularly strong therapeutic value that's under being under review by various research projects and um, commonly used for things like chest and throat infections. Um, one particular uh, species of the Eremophila has been examined for its antibiotic properties. So there've been a, some preclinical work in this area. It's promising. Um, and I think the other one is more of a, it's not so much a medicine, but it, it, it's a social use of, a, of an indigenous plant as a psychoactive substance. It, it's a nicotine, a native nicotine from the Duwazia, Pitchery is the common name for it. And that is mixed with um, very alkaline ash from a particularly small number of plants, trees, and that increases the efficacy or the, or the power, if you like, of that nicotine. It's used in, in ceremony, male initiation, uh, in some areas. People over thousands of years worked out that there were particular subspecies or, or varieties of the Duwazia that were particularly uh, useful and, and effective, and that was in the southwest area of Queensland. And, and great quantities of, of the pituri were traded right across Australia. So this is another example of the trade networks. So this is more of a recreational um, psychoactive value, and that was, that was certainly traded very widely. So they're the three. One of them is not a bush medicine as such, but there are two that are. Um, and there's also, this is not particularly a bush medicine, but it's, it's how science has discovered some of the unique attributes of of, of uh, materials used by Aboriginal people. And I'll give you the example of Spinifex, which is a widely distributed plant uh, right across the arid lands of Australia. Um, a scientist at the University of Queensland, I think it was Queensland 
University um, was trying to work out what the attributes are of, of the spinifex resin, which is used very widely to bind axe heads to, to shafts and so on. And in the process of analysing the characteristics of the resin, dis discovered that there are unique nanofibres that can be used in rubber products and so on. And one of the first potential applications is to use the nanofibres from the spinifex in condoms. So being able to produce stronger and thinner condoms. So that's a slightly amusing uh, application, but it came about because of the Aboriginal use of a particularly powerful resin. And, and Western scientists were very interested in how that, what were the characteristics were. So there's a lot that's happened in the, in the bush medicine technology world that we are yet to discover. Absolutely, Dan, and my marketing brain is already thinking of the slogans there for uh, safe sex, hop to it, uh, etc. <laughs> uh, just before we finish this part of the podcast, I want to take you back to some of the things you talked about with the, uh, the bush medicines, etc., and especially that, that concept of going away uh, to deal with diabetes and, and just eating game meat that's found, etc., how much of this bush medicine has its efficacy in the context in which it happens, as opposed to just the intrinsic active ingredients themselves? Have you ever reflected on that aspect and whether it's translatable to someone living in a small box in the middle of a metropolis? Yeah, uh, the personal examples of people going bush relate to a frustration with, with Western medicine, for example, the, the Western treatment for diabetes one of the issues, a significant issue is compliance with medication. So a lot of people say, well, this, this Western medicine's not doing me any good, possibly because they're not uh, utilizing the, the medicine. And so the frustration gives rise to a desire to return to the traditional methods. So there's a psychological as well as a, a medical explanation for that, if you like. Dan Tyson, thank you for joining This Pathological Life. Thank you very much. Pleased to uh, have been involved. So some people are asking for compensation, and I think particularly our elderly people need to be looked after. Um, a lot of them have been sick. A lot of our elderly people actually died um, from ill health that they went through when they were taken away. Um, they lived in, if uh, I know some that were sent to pastoralists, um, a lot of those people suffered a lot of trauma, um, they were raped, they lived in uh, outside in the winter in the cold, they suffered pneumonia, uh, bronchial problems um, and a lot of them died. The ones that are left alive, some of them are still have sickness related back to to those years fascinating chat with dan and, and travis one thing that i can't help but think is that the europeans would have done a lot better had they had more curiosity about how the indigenous people were interacting with the land because there certainly was curiosity the other way there, there was it's from what we know of the events written down uh and discussed uh at the time was there was curiosity when even the boats entered Sydney Cove. So uh, when the ships uh, were stationed there, the Aboriginal peoples or Indigenous peoples did a lot of hooting and hollering, burning fires, because they could see people climbing up on 
on these well, they weren't sure what they were, and they thought they were apparitions. Um, so they thought they were possums climbing up on masts and, and everything. So it was, you know, they were trying to scare them away, thinking that, you know, again, they might have seen boats before, but these were seemed here to stay. Um, but when they came onto the land, there was curiosity, and there was almost, there was dancing between sort of the, the tribes as to sort of trying to get a feel for what these people are. They were clothed. Again, Aboriginals or Indigenous people were not clothed. Uh, and so they're seeing they couldn't work out because these people, they couldn't work out if they were male or female or, you know, it was hidden. Uh, but again, like with anything, conflict begins because then people are starting to take things from the land, which is the Aboriginals, the, you know, people's land. Uh, and this conflict initially was just in bits and pieces uh you know people would go off to collect things and they would get speared but they might have gone into a sacred area or not but the one of the impacts that we have that we do know of is the uh they said it was sort of seemed inexplicable but in in 1789 there's a smallpox outbreak in the indigenous communities um, where bodies were found with these characteristic pox. And, you know, the Europeans are going, well, how has this happened? Uh, as they do, and clearly it's been brought in. You know, they have pustules and these accounts of bodies just lying in water because, again, these communities are have encountering smallpox for the first time. They won't know what's happening. Uh, and we even have a quote from David Collins, who's the judge advocate of the colony in, in April 1789. At that time, a native was living with us, and on taking him down to the harbour to look for his former companions, those who witnessed his expression and agony can never forget either. He looked anxiously around him in the different coves we visited. Not a vestige on the sand was to be found of human foot. Not a living person was anywhere to be met with. It seemed as if, flying from the contagion, they had left the dead to bury the dead. He lifted up his hands and eyes in silent agony for some time. At last he exclaimed, All dead! All dead! And then hung his head in mournful silence. So we didn't just bring diseases, we also brought alcohol. Now, alcohol was a powerful commodity. This was used to control uh, convicts' population, and it turned out also involved the indigenous populations. Uh, people like to get drunk and everyone liked to get drunk. It became such a powerful commodity. Um, it, it ended up turning out to be something of the, called the rum wars where they had to actually send people over to try and break up this you know, uh, conglomerate of people who had enormous power of the alcohol. And the, that's what was starting the impact in the first few years. And so these initial conflicts steadily increased as more and more people came communities were displaced uh, they were subjugated they were persecuted and they were killed and it was eventually believed that the indigenous population was heading for extinction here is the answer three generations Half-blood grandmother, quadroon daughter, octroon grandson. Now, as you can see, in the third generation, or third cross, 
no trace of native origin is apparent. The continuing infiltration of white blood finally stamps out the black color. The Aboriginal has simply been bred out. Travis, we've heard two very different stories thus far. The European experience, the experience of Indigenous peoples, and now we'll come home in the final part of this episode. How are we going to bring these stories together? Where do we pick it up? So we pick it up as a medical student, really. Uh, Most uh, medical students will see the disparity. Uh, In Australian culture, we have Indigenous health and non-Indigenous health. Uh, And there's a large divide. Uh, You know, you can look at the statistics and it's, you know, just pulling them out, you know, life expectancy, uh, you know, Indigenous versus non-Indigenous for males. There's an eight years difference. Uh, So, um, and if we look at non-Indigenous versus Indigenous women, there's nine years difference for life expectancy. We know that, uh, you know, Indigenous uh, people or Aboriginal peoples, often live in remote locations, uh, you know, and associated with poor socioeconomics. So there's already a, a part that we know have just general uh, poorer health uh, just because of the remoteness. But that doesn't explain it all. And you, we have, you know, increased incidence of chronic diseases such as respiratory or cardiovascular disease. The incidence of diabetes in high, is higher in, in the Indigenous communities and, and chronic kidney disease. Uh, there are diseases that we don't have anymore in the non in, uh, in the uh, non-indigenous world, such as uh, trachoma, bacterial infection of the eye, you know, rheumatic heart disease. This is not prevalent in the non-indigenous communities, and and mental health problems are, are more in, in that region. And as a medical student, I remember thinking, well, why is there such the disparity? And you know. I ended up going to Alice Springs Hospital for my medical elective rotation. Uh, I I wanted to be in sort of a tertiary hospital, have all the resources that you could have, but then see firsthand as to the, you know, community and see if I could work out the disparity. We'll get to that at the end. But what I want to do is actually take us through a bit of a, a timeline of events from the stories that we have had. So the initial landing and there's actually a really good documentary that's out uh, that's a SBS documentary called First Australians that really does much more justice than, than the time we have here. Uh, so if anyone's interested, I recommend it highly to, to look that. But, you know, we just have a few snapshots of, you know, again, there was an attempt to have a, a really sort of a dialogue or, you know, uh, harmonious relations, and that was through Arthur Philip and and an instance of Benelong, you know, in 1788. So he was, Arthur Philip was the captain, you know, first fleet and the first governor of New South Wales, and he was determined to get along with the Indigenous people. And oddly enough, he was missing his first front tooth. Now, the reason why that's relevant is because in the indigenous population at the time, they would lose their front tooth as their man uh, initiation, the, the, you know, into manhood. So he lost his front tooth, and then they saw that this had been a man who had actually gone through uh, an initiation. But the way he went about getting that sort of dialogue happening is he kidnapped two indigenous 
Aboriginal men. Uh. One was by the name of Benelong, who turned out to be charming, who was uh, built trust and, you know, was able to get them to a point where they felt he was shackled at the time, that he could be unshackled. This was over a period of time. Eventually, he convinced someone to remove his shackled and escaped. Arthur went about to try and find Benelong and ended up finding him at a whale feast. And Arthur goes to him in indigenous, clearly either a ritual or, you know, and approaches him. But Arthur is speared through the shoulder that goes through his back. And this is a time of payback for kidnapping Benelong. Now, Benelong doesn't intervene, but this is part of the culture. Surprisingly, Arthur refuses any vengeance to be taken for this act and heals. And a month later, Benelong returns and greets Arthur as his friend. So it's been made equal. The thing that takes an unusual step is that in December of 1790, a gameskeeper by the name of Philip McIntyre is killed with a death spear by a group of Aboriginals. It's a long hunting spear. It has two rows of stone flakes on the blade attached by resin, which dislodge. So it's meant to kill. But it's thought that this uh, gameskeeper had been killing uh, indigenous people whilst he's been out and roaming. So this is, again, retaliation. Mm, payback. That's yeah. right. And so, but this, uh, Arthur Philip gets very outraged about, and they send hunting parties to try and find those responsible. But again, this is in the backyard of uh, Aboriginal peoples. They don't find anyone. What ends up happening is... Arthur Philip, eventually, after a few years, has had enough, for whatever reason, and decides to return to England. At that time, Benelong returns with him to England. He leaves his wife, uh, and there is another Indigenous person who also leaves with him. So Benelong, then, is the toast of high English society at the time. He's there for four to five years and ends up returning. But he is disowned. He's left his people, his wife has remarried, and he ends up being in a... a state of limbo. By that's the right. Of it. Mm. Uh, ends up turning to drink, but then eventually he's not accepted by the white people at the time. He's not accepted by his own community at the time. Returns to his old ways, which is seen as poor by the white people because he, you know, been cultured and now not and ends up dying uh, years later and is buried at Kissing Point. But it's, again, in between two worlds. So at this point in time, we've got convicts and settlers keep on arriving. Land is being cleared. Food and water is being used for stock. And in this harsh environment, food and water, particularly water, is life-giving and often sacred sites. So cattle going to drink goes into those sacred sites. And so there's so many examples of the tragedies of this encounter. Um, I can only use a few examples. If we use Tasmania in 1828, it's declared a state of martial law. 
the Aboriginal peoples at the time had a population of 6,000 that was down now to 1,000. There was a bounty on, on Aboriginal peoples at the time for uh, adults for five pounds and two pounds for children if they were captured alive. And people were legally allowed to shoot any Indigenous people if they came into town or were on any farms. It's known as the Black War, and then they, there's something called the Black Line, which was pretty much hunting uh, the p- population uh, to remove them from the land. And there was a person by the name of George Augustus Robinson who, with the, the aid of promises and diplomacy with an with a Aboriginal woman, uh, Triganani, who believed what he was saying, they were trying to uh, kill Aboriginals, but he went with diplomacy and said, if you come with me, I will sort the peace out and you can return to your land. But this was a lie. They ended up rounding up 300, uh, 300 Aboriginal people and they end up sent, being sent to a mission called Waibalina in Flinders Island to be civilised and Christianised. And once they got there, they never returned to their homeland. And this is argued that if Aboriginals people came back, it would reduce the property value. And so they ended up being moved to Oyster Bay. At this time, there was only uh, 46 uh, uh, people left. And then 20 years later, there was only three Aboriginal survivors left. And at this stage, Aboriginal peoples were believed to be the most primitive of the world. And so they were set for what was believed extinction. And even Charles Darwin visited and quoted... All the Aboriginals have been removed to an island in the Straits so that Van Diemen's land enjoys the great advantage of being free from a native population. This most cruel step seems to have been quite unavoidable as the only means of stopping a fearful succession of robberies, burnings and murders committed by the blacks, but which, sooner or later, must have ended in the utter destruction I fear there is no doubt that this train of evil and its consequences originated in the infamous conduct of some of our countrymen. Thirty years is a short period in which to have banished the last Aboriginals from his native land. Some even think the race will soon become extinct. This brings us to Victoria in 1860. So the population has been there for 30 years. It's now bordering on half a million people of settlers. And before settlers had arrived, there was 36 Aboriginal clans, about 60,000 people. At this time, it's down to 2,000. This is a gold rush time, so Melbourne is the most expensive city in the world. There is a leader, Aboriginal elder, by the name of Wonga, uh, and another, uh, his cousin, Barak, who end up trying to salvage what is left, and they settle at a camp called Corandirk, and they, have, they are aided by the missionary John Green, who believes that in Aboriginal self-governance, he was enlightened about they should be able to look after themselves and govern themselves. But this was short-lived, and freedoms were slowly stripped away. John Green ended up being replaced by a, a, a different missionary. This leads to this new missionary enacting something called the Half-Caste Act, 
which meant that only pure-blood Aboriginals can stay in the camp that there is. And that's even if parents or grandparents are full-blooded, but their children aren't, the children are removed. The entire Victorian Aboriginal descendants now, we can trace back to about 300 individuals. If we look at Central Australia in 1870s, first white man arrives. This is because they're doing an overland telegraph line, and that even passes through sacred land. The missionaries, German missionaries, uh, turn up. It uh, takes them two years to travel, and they almost die. With them, as long as the colonization is happening, 20,000 herd of cattle are transported at this time as well. But it's good at the moment, but then it turns into drought land, as it always does. So they use the sacred water to feed the cattle that pollute it. But the Aboriginals and Indigenous people see this is a very useful food resource because you've got cattle everywhere in a time of drought. The problem is that seen as stealing, the punishable by death and shooting. Between the years of 1794 and 1928, there's 270 massacres over 140 years. And that is where six or more people have been killed. In 1901, we have Federation, and in 1902, Parliament excludes Aboriginal natives and Australians from the Commonwealth. And in December 1901, we have something called the White Australia Policy is instituted. Again, that's just a straight-out racist thing, but again, Aboriginal people and Indigenous people are here already. This was more of an Asian racist policy that was put in. In January 26, 1938, we have the Day of Mourning, which is protests in Sydney because Aboriginal and Indigenous people don't have the right to vote. In 1950s, we have the stolen generation of Aboriginal peoples and children forcibly removed from their parents. And then it's not until federally, that is, in 1965, when Aboriginal peoples and Indigenous people have the right to vote. Now, different states do it at different times. But again, it's put in with a twist that it's illegal to encourage Indigenous or Aboriginal people to vote because it's seen as persuasion. You might be able to persuade them to vote. And it's not until 1967 that we have a referendum where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are to be included in the census. So if we look at Parliament just in itself, we have Queensland has their first member of Parliament, Neville Bonner, in 1971. Victoria has theirs in Bendigo, David Kennedy, in in 1969. Our first federal member of parliament is Kenneth Wyatt. He was elected in 2010. In 2008, our our Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, gave an apology to the stolen generation. It's 2021, and we still don't have Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander recognition in our constitution. So to answer my question as to why the health of the Aboriginal people uh, is so poor compared to non-Indigenous people, it's because there is a culture that existed for 80,000 to 100,000 years were consigned to extinction by our ancestors, whether this was through ambivalence, neglect, or willful intent. So the 26th of January, 1788, was the date the first European settlers first set foot on Australian soil to stay. However, there was a price for this step, and it was borne by the Aboriginals people. (music) 
the average non-Indigenous Australian is, I think, embarrassed if they meet an Aboriginal person because they frankly don't know quite how to behave. They, it, it's difficult for them to be natural and friendly as they would to a neighbour or, you know, someone that... Uh, there's a latent racism there, I think, that uh, the whole point of the journey of healing and Sorry Day is to diminish that racism. And the way to do it is through listening to stories uh, which will bring an understanding of their background, their culture, their individual journeys. Understanding opens the way to harmony and fellowship and unity. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening and just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there and we'd love to have you along.